Now, I want you to find the book of Malachi. Would you do that, please? I want you to find the book of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Good. Now then, I want you to find the book of Matthew. You found it? That approximately took you maybe 30 seconds to find Matthew, to find Malachi, and then to find Matthew. But there's one thing you must remember, friends, that when you close the Bible at the book of Malachi and then turn to the book of Matthew in the New Testament, 400 years have come and gone. In those 30 seconds between looking up Malachi, looking up Matthew, 400 years have elapsed. They're known as the 400 silent years. But during those 400 years, great events had taken place, not only in the world history, but in relation to uh, God's people. And before we come to the verse we're going to think about this evening, I have to set the verse in its context. The Babylonian Empire, as you know, was conquered by the Medo-Persians. And then the Medo-Persian Empire was conquered by the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. And then the, the Grecian Empire was subsequently conquered by the Great Roman Empire. Now when you come to the book of Daniel, chapter 11, we're going to lift out one little verse and it's verse 32, and it says these words, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt thy flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Now I have to be faithful to the word of God this evening. And there's two things we must always remember when you come to study the Word of God, and is this. There is, first of all, interpretation. And there can only be one interpretation of Scripture in its historical or its prophetical context. Interpretation. But then... In addition to interpretation, you have application, in which we can apply different principles from the original interpretation of the verses. And what I'm going to do tonight is to give you an example of interpretation and then application. I've already said that during those 400 years, tremendous events had taken place in relation to the nation of Israel. Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. 
Now when you come to Daniel chapter 11, you must remember that Daniel, under the inspiration of God, wrote those verses, those chapters. But in his day and generation, they were prophecy. Daniel was prophesying of things that were to come. They had not yet come, but they were prophesied that they would come. So therefore, from Daniel's point of view, under the inspiration of God, he's prophesying of events that, as far as he was concerned, were yet future. But we live in the 21st century, and we look back upon Daniel chapter 11, and we find that uh, up to verse 35 or 36 of Daniel chapter 11, those verses have been already fulfilled. They are history as far as we are concerned. As far as Daniel was concerned, they were prophecy because he was speaking of the future. But in our 21st century, we look back upon these verses and we can see them literally and minutely fulfilled in history. And you can consult your history books and you'll find what Daniel prophesied was wonderfully and minutely fulfilled. Now when... Alexander the Great of the Great Grecian Empire, when he died, something very significant happened. His kingdom did not pass on to his sons, he had two sons, but they were murdered. What happened was this, that the, the Grecian Empire was divided among his four generals. And we have the generals uh, in history. We have Cassander, and uh, to him he uh, was in charge of Macedonia and Greece. The Syracus was uh, with regard to the region of Bithynia. Uh, Ptolemy, Egypt, Palestine and Arabia. And Seleucus, uh, Syria, Babylonia and uh, India. And that was how the Grecian Empire was divided after Alexander the Great died at the young age in his 30s. So tragic. So the Grecian Empire divided between the four generals that I've just mentioned. Now when you come in to read Daniel chapter 11, you will find time and time again in these verses references to the king of the, the south, king of the north. And that is describing battles between the, the northern part and the southern part of over a period of 200 years. So keep it in mind when you're reading Daniel chapter 11. It'll help you to understand that when it mentions the king of the north, that is a reference to Seleucus and those that followed him, who had authority in Syria, Babylonia and India. 
When it speaks of the king of the south, it's a reference to Ptolemy and his successors who had region, who had control over Egypt, Palestine and Arabia. And between these two powers, there was continual conflict and wars for 200 years. And that is what Daniel is speaking about. And in between the north and the south, you have, of course, Jerusalem, the nation of Israel. And they were caught up in those wars. Now, when you come to Daniel chapter 11... Uh, it says in verse 32, it says, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt. Now, who is referred to when it says he shall corrupt? No name is given, but we know from history of that particular time that uh, that is a reference to Antichus Epiphanes who was the last Seleucid governor from 175 to 163 B.C. Now he was a vile man, a wicked man, who sought to destroy Judaism. And he forbid the Jewish people to have their sacrifices and he even did something that was abominable. He offered swine on the altar in the temple. And of course you realize that was an abomination to Israel. So that is who is referred to when it says he shall corrupt in a reference to Epiphanes. And then it says, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploit. Now that's not a reference to you friends or to me in the 21st century. The interpretation of that verse tells us that the people referred to in verse 32 is actually a reference to what is known as the Maccabees. They were, loyal, they were loyal to the covenant of Israel and to Judaism and they rose up in rebellion against Epiphanes. They knew their God and they did wonderful exploits for him. So much so that eventually worship was restored in the temple and great things was accomplished because the Maccabees rose up and did conflict against Epiphanes. Now that, dear friends, very briefly, is the interpretation of that verse. It has already been fulfilled in history that has long gone past. But what we are going to do this evening, we are going to apply these words. We know the interpretation of the verse in its historical setting. We are going to apply these words because there are principles that we can learn from these words. The people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Now if you were here last Sunday... And uh, I have to say that you are at a, a wee bit of a disadvantage if you weren't here last Sunday because this teaching this evening is a follow-on from what we were thinking about uh, last Sunday. 
And unfortunately, I can't preach the same message that I preached last Sunday tonight and then give you the new teaching. You'll be here to midnight, so I can't do that, friends. But last Sunday, we were thinking of the Christian's middle sea. We use in the, middle, the musical term, the middle sea. And of course, Graham would know immediately what the middle sea is. The middle sea is the, the note. It was the same yesterday, it's the same today, and if we live for a thousand years, it will be the same. Because middle sea never changes. And we were emphasizing last Sunday that Christians, you and I, we need to have a middle sea in our lives. Because we live in an age that is continually fluctuating and changing. And we discovered last Sunday that the Christian's middle sea is none other than God himself. He is, we noticed last Sunday, he is the everlasting one. No beginning, no ending. He is the eternal God. Then we noticed that it is, he is the ever unchanging one. Immutability. You change, I change, the world changes. But here is someone who never changes. He said himself, I am the Lord, I change not. And then, of course, we notice uh, that he is the ever, the ever consistent one, and the ever loving and the ever caring one. And that, in brief, was what we were thinking about last Sunday. Your middle sea, my middle sea, someone who never changes. And what a time we had as we try to, to grasp something of the greatness, the majesty, and the glory of God. And if you were like me last Sunday, you were out of your depth. You can go only so far and no farther. We sang the night, then sings my soul, my Saviour God to thee, how great thou art. Now, tonight we're going to take this another step. And here's the amazing news, friends. We can know this wonderful God we were speaking about last Sunday. So wonderful, so great, so majestic. We can know him. Because it says here, the people that know their God shall be strong. So it is possible, gloriously possible, for us mortals to know this awesome God. But let me do this in a very simple way this evening. Uh, let me say just four things about these people mentioned in Daniel 11 and 32. And here's the first one. They are a privileged people. Secondly, they are a knowledgeable people. Thirdly, they are a strong people. And then lastly, they are an active people. Four wonderful things about the people mentioned here in Daniel eleven thirty-two. Here's the first one then. They are a privileged people. Now, it doesn't say they were a rich people 
or an educated people, or a gifted people. But they were a privileged people in the sense that they knew God. And those of us who are Christians this evening, I wonder, do you realize that you are a privileged person this evening? Go out in the streets of Moodysburn. You're seeing men and women, they have, no, they have no time for God, they have no time for the church. They're in the bingo hall perhaps, in the public house, wherever they are. But here we are in this little service of night, and we are a privileged people. We may not be rich, we may not be educated, but if we're Christians, we know God. We are privileged. I did my theological training down in the great city of London and sometimes on a Sunday I would go along to hear uh, the famous Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, who was the minister in Westminster Chapel all those years ago, tremendous preacher, used to be a medical doctor by profession and for about 30 years minister of Westminster Chapel and what a privilege it was to go and to hear the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and he said on one occasion he said, it is a privilege to be a Christian. It is a privilege to be a Christian. Not religious, not a churchgoer, but to be a Christian. Saved by the wonderful grace of God. So these people, they are a privileged people. And by way of application, we tonight are a privileged people because we know God but then let me say secondly they are a knowledgeable, knowledgeable people because it says they do know their God now notice it does not say they know God it doesn't say that it says they know their God you see, this is a personal knowledge. They know their God. And that's how it is, dear friends. It's a personal knowledge. Your knowledge of God, my knowledge of God, it is a personal knowledge. And you can see this as you read the Bible time and time again. Take, for example, the Apostle Paul. He says in Philippians, he says that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. We almost say, Paul, wait a minute, wait a minute. That I may know him? Paul. You've been a Christian for nearly 30 years since the Lord saved in the road to Damascus. And you're writing, you're, you're writing this little church at Philippi and you say that I may know him. Surely in 30 years uh, there's nothing else to know. You know it all. Oh no, he says that I may know him. You see, it's a personal knowledge. He didn't say that I, that we might know him. You see, friends, he can only speak for himself. And you can only speak for yourself. You can't speak for me, and I can't speak for you. You can only speak for yourself. This was Paul's desire, that I may know 
him. Is that your ambition this evening? Is that your desire? Is that your longing that you may know him? It's a personal knowledge. But then, of course, it is a progressive knowledge. You see, a bit here, a bit there. It's going to take a life, it's going to take all eternity to know God. It is progressive. That's why Peter says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We progress. And dear friends, as a pastor for many years, sometimes it's so sad when you, re- when you meet Christians, and I say this very graciously, sometimes you meet God's people, and they almost fold their arms in complacency and say, well, I, I have arrived. I have arrived. You can't teach me anything. I have arrived. As if to say, Nothing more to learn. I know it all. How sad. How pathetic. You see, their knowledge of God, even a wee thimble, would be too big to contain all their knowledge. It would even fill a thimble. And yet they say, I have arrived. I hope there's no one like that in the meeting tonight, friends. You haven't arrived. And I've got news for you, you will never arrive. For not even in eternity, not even in eternity, you will, you will come to that stage in which you will say, well, that's it, that's it. No, no, nothing else to learn. Because for all eternity, we're going to uh, plumb the depths and scale the heights the length, the breadth, the depth the height of the greatness, the majesty of God personal knowledge it is a progressive knowledge to know tell me do you know more tonight than you did last Sunday how's your knowledge getting on are you progressing what about this time last year? Do you know more t- tonight than you did last year? Are you progressing? Are you getting on? How are you doing? Getting to know God. Personal, progressive. And then we shall see that it is a practical knowledge. Now let me say something here, friends, and don't misunderstand me. When the Bible speaks of knowing God and knowledge... It's not so much taken up with what we would call academic knowledge. For example, you go to university, you study for two or three years, you get a degree or four years, get an honours degree. If you're very clever, you go on for a PhD. That's academic knowledge. That's theoretical knowledge. But when the Bible speaks of knowledge, it's not so much academic theoretical knowledge. It is experiential knowledge. Not so much knowing about, but knowing God. And there's a big difference. I know about the Prime Minister, Tony Blair. 
I had told David, David Cameron, he, he was the Prime Minister. We got out of debt, you see. David Cameron, I know the Prime Minister. Um, he lives in 10 Downing Street, but um, he's never invited me. To, he's never on the phone to me about the economic situation, which he doesn't. It hardly counts. But you see, I know about him, but I don't know him. I know about the Queen. She lives in Buckingham Palace, a, a lovely woman. But uh, she's never asked me, invited me to her garden parties. I know about her. I don't know her. And the sad thing is of many Christians, don't be content with doctrine. Don't be content with mere teaching. Doctrine and teaching is a means to an end and not the end in itself. And sad to say there are many of God's people, they get their heads full of doctrine, prophecy, the Bible. And sad to say they stop there. Don't stop there, friends. Lovely old hymn that I love, and one verse puts like this. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. That's it. Beyond the sacred page. Yes, the scriptures will take you right into the presence of God. But it's a means to an end. And not the end in itself. So it's a personal knowledge. A progressive knowledge. And we shall see it is a practical knowledge. Not just academic knowledge. But experiential knowledge. So there are privileged people. They are a knowledgeable people, but they don't thirdly, very quickly, they are a strong people. The people that know their God shall be strong. Strong in the Lord, as Paul would say, and in the power of his might. Oh, these are a strong people because they know God in a wonderful way. But I want to, fourthly, to spend a wee more time than this. They are an active people. The people that know their God shall be strong and shall do exploits. They are an active people. Now, notice there's a divine order here. And you can't violate it. You can't reverse it. There are many Christians, they want to do exploits without, first of all, being strong. They want to be strong, first of all, without being knowing God. But here's the divine order. Not my order, God's order. The people that know their God, there's the first step, shall be strong, there's the second stage, and shall do exploits, there's the third stage. That's the order. That's God's order. And you can't violate it. The people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And when you turn to the Bible, you find that it's absolutely full of people who knew God and did exploits for him. Read Hebrews 11. A whole chapter devoted to men and women who lived and triumphed and died in faith and did great things for God. But let's step out of uh, sacred history. And we find that, uh, as we look at history generally, there has been people that have done great exploits for God. Take, for example, that great evangelist, D.L. Moody. 
in my humble opinion, he was probably one of the greatest evangelists of all time. The great D.L. Moody. And even in the city of Glasgow, Moody and Sankey held some of the great crusades and were instrumental in drawing thousands of people and many were swept into the kingdom of God. What a man. What an evangelist who did exploits for God. Now how did that happen? Listen very carefully. There was one day in which D.L. Moody heard a man say something. And what the man said gripped his soul. And it was to change his life. Now here is what Moody heard the man say. And I quote, The world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. That is what Moody heard. Did you get it? Did you grasp it? The world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully consecrated to him. Moody thought. He said a man. He did not say a great man, nor a learned man, nor a rich man, nor a wise man, nor an eloquent man, nor a smart man, but simply a man. I am a man. And it lies with man himself, whether he will or will not, to make that fentire and full consecration. I will try my utmost to be that man. The rest is history. And all because he heard that man say those words. It changed his life. I will try my utmost to be that man. And God took on his word. The rest is history. The great work that he achieved in his native America and also in Great Britain. No doubt you have heard uh, about James Hudson Taylor. Does that ring a bell? James Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of the China Inland Mission. Now in 1876, the China Inland Mission, they held their first anniversary service in which they were going to look back on the previous 10 years of working in China. And as they looked back upon the, the past 10 years, they rejoiced that 28 stations in five provinces of China had been established. 600 converts Gloriously and wonderfully saved. 68 missionaries had been sent to China during the 10 years. Listen to this. Without a collection or an appeal of any kind for funds, £52,000 had been received. Now remember, this is the 19th century we're talking about, not the 21st century. In the 19th century, 52,000 pounds came in without an appeal. Came in. 
James Hudson exploits for God. I was preaching some time ago in Motherwell, and after the service, there happened to be a businessman. And we got chatting together, and uh, this man, he goes to China in connection with his work, his business. And he had just recently returned from China. He was a Christian. And of course, being a Christian, when he was in China, he sought out a church. As you would do, and I would do. And he went to one church. And at 8 o'clock in the morning, Fred, not at night time, 8 o'clock in the morning, 2,000 people gathered. In the same church at half past nine, another 2,000 people gathered in that particular church. And that was one of the official churches. Now in China, you have the underground church. But this was an official church. And he said, do you know, the preacher got up and my, how he preached the gospel. How he preached the word of God. Now no doubt there would be spies in that congregation from the government of China to make sure he didn't deviate. But uh, he was faithful to the word of God. Think of it, friends. 2,000 people at 8 o'clock in the morning. Some Christians can't get out for 11 o'clock on the Sunday morning, but they're at 8 o'clock in the morning. They weren't turning over. They were turning out to, to get to the house of God at 9.30 again, 2,000. Now, I realize, of course, uh, you've got to put that in context when you've got a, a, a bit of a billion of a population. I know that, friends. But you see, when they expelled the missionaries way back in 1948-49, they thought, well, that's the end of it. We don't want Christianity. We're atheists. We don't believe in the Bible. Poor, poor, pathetic people. They weren't fighting Christians. Oh, no, friends. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And in ten of the day, the church is growing tremendously. Oh, because one man, James Hudson Taylor, got a vision, got a burden for China. A privileged people, a knowledgeable people, Strong people, adaptive people. Now, maybe I know what you're thinking. I'm hoping, bro. You probably think, well, that's family. That's wonderful what you've been saying about D.L. Moody. And we say amen. And what about James Hudson Taylor? That's wonderful. But I'm not a D.L. Moody. I'm not a, I'm not a Hudson Taylor. I'm just me. Insignificant, unimportant, my dear friends, listen to this, God is sovereign. He's not limited to the D.L. Moody's, not limited to the Hudson Taylor's. He can take you the night, friends, he can take me, he can take anyone, he's sovereign. And it's been my prayer for this meeting this evening, that this teaching... We're not going one ear and out the other. Oh no. 
but I trust that we shall leave this meeting changed and transformed with this resolution by the grace of God I'm going to be one of these privileged people that know God and are strong and in my day and generation I'm going to do exploits for him will you give him your life tonight if you haven't already done so your talents your gifts your ability and say in the words that lovely hymn that we sometimes sing take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee take my moments and my days let them flow in ceaseless praise as someone has said only one life it will soon be over only what's done for Christ will last this isn't a rerun of your life this is the life you've got and who knows it could end at any time I don't know you don't know but you know I trust and I hope that when I meet him in the glory as you will meet him in the glory and when your eyes meet his eyes and his eyes meet your eyes as they surely will that he will say to you and say to me well done good and faithful servant that to me will be true heavens if I hear him say those words to this poor creature that is before you man's praise means nothing it's what he thinks that makes all the difference and when he bottles the books I trust that he will be able to say well done good and faithful servants the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits God grant it in our day and generation. For his name's sake. Amen.